Hey guys, wanted to invite you to the Awaken Conference, Memorial Day weekend, May 23rd through 25th in 2020. We are bringing it back. Thousands of young adults are gonna gather in this city, Dallas, Texas, to be a part of a weekend where we awaken to the movement you were made for, which is the church. To be a part of that weekend, to find out all that'll be involved, you can go to awaken.live and sign up. You don't wanna miss it and we hope to see you there. Let's go. Welcome, friends in the room. Fort Worth, El Paso, Phoenix, Houston, Cedar Rapids, Mint Hill, North Carolina, Northwest Arkansas, wherever you're joining in from, tuning in from. We are kicking off a new series tonight, Bloodline, where we, for the next four weeks, are going to look at the overarching main story of the Bible and trace through the bloodline of Jesus. Um, Let me start like this. I don't want to brag, but um, I have been told that a part of the Marvin family, as so many traced it, originally landed in the 1600s and was one of like 16 different people that founded uh, Norfolk, Connecticut, and Hartford, Connecticut. And just as, as we like trace through our family lineage, it's, it's just been traced back to once upon a time, David Marvin, there was somebody way, way back named Matthew Marvin even a son, me, son named Matthew Marvin. And apparently this family was one of like 16 people that made a big deal if you're from Connecticut and inside of that city today, there's like plaques and even statues uh, devoted to this group of settlers who founded the original thing. They came over from England on this, uh, not on Plymouth, but on Increase. And they just were a part of this original group. And, and, uh, and it was pretty crazy to find all this out because then it's like, oh, dude, this guy has a Wikipedia page. He had a you know, son that was a House of Representative member. Like, dude, this is you know, in, in our family. And then it never really felt like something I was connected to. And here's why. At the same time, that seemed kind of cool. It always felt like, yeah, it's, it's just kind of cool. And it was because my grandfather, whose who's, uh, name our family Marvin comes from, was adopted into his family. He was adopted and really left on the doorstep of a doctor in town, and apparently there was some uh, uh, young pregnancy that had the baby and didn't feel like they could have the baby at that time, so they gave it up for adoption, and so he was adopted, and we've never known who the family line was, who we actually are. We were adopted into this Marvin family, and we've always wondered, or I've always wondered, my siblings, cousins, everyone's like, man, I wonder who actually is our, our family, because like, that transforms everything from like, look, dude, wow, we are a really big deal. We're part of the House of Representatives. We got our name on like a plaque and out there to just kind of like, oh, that's not really us. That's just, it might as well like be George Washington or something out there. It's no longer something significantly tied because it's not in our blood. And we've never known who it was. And there's always been this curiosity. And we could do like Ancestry.com or 23andMe or any of the blood tests, but that doesn't actually give you like the exact tracing. It kind of goes, you know, you're from the continent of Europe, which... Shocker. And uh, <laughs> we knew that, but we never would be able to trace who it was until last summer. What happened last summer? My uncle, Uncle Rusty, who's about as close to the character of Kramer on Seinfeld as any person on the planet, <laughs> had basically come in and he was like, guys, I solved the mystery. I've been tracing. And he had gone out and by uh, like uh, close to Kramer, I'm not kidding at all. Like Uncle Rusty, he's an artist by trade. 
doesn't really do a ton and hangs out at the house. And he led himself on just this investigative work where he was gonna find out exactly who was in the family tree. So he called up different people. We were from this small town in Kansas. He called up family members who might've known someone, who knew somebody, who knew somebody. And he traced down, I mean, he like was buying different pieces of anything that he could find related to that town. He would like buy it up, even if it was a postcard or a stamp. He was going all in to investigate. And he found, and one day he let all the family know, I found out who grandpa's original parents were. I mean, this was a game changer. And he like sent us all the research. And by Kramer, I further mean like, he, this wasn't like ancestry.com, like, oh, that's kind of cool. You know, click the button and it fills it out. He's like, dude, I don't even use a computer. You go into his house and on the wall, it's like just pictures and ropes tied to things. And he's like, I've got, I'm, I'm not kidding at all. It's amazing. And when he solved the mystery and he sent us all this information, like he sent me this binder where like everything's handwritten out on like this person's related here. And he traced it all the way back into like Germany and uh, into the 1700s of this is actually who you're from and the family lineage that you're a part of. And as a family, I remember getting that with like my siblings and you're kind of fascinated. I feel like there's always one kind of family tree person in every family who, who geeks out about it and they share it with the rest of everybody. And that person shared it, but all of us were interested on like, man, this tells more of the story of who we are and how we got here. As we kick off this series on bloodline, our hope is as we explore the bloodline of Jesus and trace through the central story of the Old Testament Bible, it's gonna give not just an indication on who Jesus was and his lineage, but it'll give an indication of who we are and how we got here. In particular, the person that we're gonna look at tonight answers a lot around the question of who you are and how we, humanity, got here. We're gonna look at the story of Adam because inside of Adam's story, we don't just find the original start of the bloodline of Jesus, we find the original start of your bloodline and my bloodline. And in his story, we don't just see Adam's story, but we see all of our story. And so we're gonna look at tonight God's first relationship and the first creation that existed on planet Earth, which was Adam and his wife Eve, and take away what we can learn from our original parents as it relates to who we are and how we got here and our world got here. What we're gonna to explore tonight is some of the most profound teachings in the entire Bible. They provide the explanation for everything broken in our world. Everything broken out there and everything broken in here. They provide the explanation for why is there school shootings? Why does evil exist at all? Why does everything wear out and break down and nothing last, including me and you? Why am I so drawn back to the same temptations, the same sin struggles, those old relationships, the same lustful thoughts? Like, what is that? Why is it that like, I can continue to follow Jesus and it's never like, oh, I put that to bed and that's all forever behind me? And not that there's not victory and growth and faith, but there's something that just continues to be the presence of sin doesn't go away. Why is that? Why do I find myself still anxious Tonight, we're gonna to look at not just how we got here, but the solution for those things. And we're gonna trace through the original uh, starting point in the bloodline of Jesus and in the bloodline of you. So we're gonna be in Genesis chapter one. If you have a Bible, you can flip open to Genesis chapter one. Genesis is the book of beginnings. And in it, we are given in chapter one, kind of a 30,000 foot view of creation of man. And a, in chapter two, a on the ground level more specific. So I'm gonna start in verse one. We're gonna look at creation what happened through temptation. 
and how that same thing is continuing to happen in your life and my life, and then some of the solution that God has provided to deal with that. So verse 26 of chapter one, this will be on the screen. If you don't have a Bible, if you're in Dallas, there are Bibles in the Welcome Center. That is our gift to you. You could take one of those uh, any week, and uh, if not, there's an app out there, so download that. Okay, verse 26 of chapter one. Then God said, let us make mankind in our own image, us, and in our likeness, that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move over the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, both male and female. Unique from all creation, he makes humankind in the image of God. I'm gonna come back to why it says let us here in a second, but then in chapter two, it goes into more specifics. Then the Lord God formed man, and it tells how he created Adam, and further, how he created Eve. He formed him from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. The word man is the same word for Adam. That's literally the translation of what it means. And God uniquely creates him among all creation. Everything else, he just speaks into existence. He says, let there be light, light. Let there be trees, trees. But uniquely with man, he forms him out of the dirt and breathes into him. It's incredibly intimate and distinct from everything else created. It's how God sees you and sees humanity, distinct from all else that is created. Verse 16, and God puts him in the garden of Eden, which is a, uh, Eden means delight. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. So God says, hey, you can eat from any tree in the garden except for that one tree, because on that day you're gonna do it, there's gonna be consequences, you're gonna die. Don't eat from that one tree. In a second, I'm gonna answer, because you may be wondering or have wondered, like, why did God even put that tree there? Why don't we just get rid of that tree? No problem. And I'm gonna answer that in a second, but first I wanna highlight, like, think about what God just did. He takes man, forms him, places him in a garden called delight or in paradise. And he literally says, hey guys, you can do whatever you want. You got one rule. This is the entire Bible at this point. Don't eat the tree. You could fit the entire Bible. Don't eat from the tree. You could fit all of it on an index card. That was it. Everything else, fair game. You do you. Do whatever you wanna do. Just don't eat from the tree. That was the Bible. That was all that God gave. The focus and really the takeaway is he says you are free See from anything that's out there. And he gave this one instruction, and I'm gonna point back to why he did that. Then verse 18. Then the Lord said, it is not good for man to be alone. At this time, it was only Adam. I will make a helper suitable for him. Before sin had ever entered into the world, God says over and over in the Genesis County, he's like, it's good. There was light and it was good. There was stars and moon and it was good. Everything was good. And then he comes to one thing before sin was ever present and he says, there's one thing that's not good. So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed them up in the place with flesh. And the Lord God made a woman, thank you, Lord, from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. In verse 23, we're told Adam busts out in song, and it's his very own version of Brian McKnight's, one, you're like a dream come true, and this couple is made 
I mean, it's true. You read it where he's like, this girl is mine. She was made for me. Just want to be with you. You're the only one for me. And it was true. And Adam and Eve were both naked and they felt no shame. They had perfect harmony and perfect relationship with one another and with God. We have never known a world that does not exist without shame. It's been a part of everything and every experience in all of our life. But they lived in like a perfect relationship in a way that they experienced total intimacy with God, with one another, no division. They spent time face to face with God, walking with him, consistently in deep relationship with God. They were created to. The first idea that it still is true about you and me that we learn from just the story of our ancient parents is that you were created for connection, for relationships. You were created to exist in relationships. That's the first thing I want to harp on. And that may go like, oh, yeah, that, you know, I get that. But here's, here's why that's so profound, so stay with me. You were made in the image of a Trinity God. You can know that? Like, why does he say, let us? It's kind of a weird thing to say. That'd be, unless there's more than one of them. And let me be really careful on this. The Bible teaches that there's something called the Trinity. It is one God and three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, eternally existed all time. You may be going, what? How does that make sense? It's a little bit beyond my pay grade to fully explain or any human to fully explain. In fact, there was a church father who said, hey, if you deny the Trinity, you will forfeit your soul. If you try to explain the Trinity, you will lose your mind. So, (laughs) but over and over, the Bible says that God eternally existed in relationship, perfect relationship with one another. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, totally together. And when he made God, he said, let us make him in our image. This three-in-one God. He made man in the image of an eternal, relational God. By definition and by design, you were created for relationship, for connection with other people. That's why the very first thing that God can say is, hey, it's not good that they would be alone. You were designed and created to connect with other people, specifically with God, with others in your life. And here's why this matters. Whether or not you realize it, you are going to seek to connect with other people. You're gonna seek to connect with with someone or something, and so it's not a question of whether or not, like you were designed for connection, and you're gonna do that in neutral whether or not you try to. You're gonna do it, we all of it. All of us are, uh, you know, uh, desire affection, we desire affirmation, we desire relationships, so you are going to seek it. It's not optional whether or not you're gonna seek connection with others. It is optional where you seek connection with others. It's like this, like in my home, we've got Wi-Fi and the Wi-Fi doesn't go upstairs. So I bought a Wi-Fi extender at Best Buy thinking this will be great. It'll take the Wi-Fi, it'll extend it upstairs. And it's pretty cool. So you plug it into the wall and whatever your Wi-Fi is, so mine's Marvin's Wi-Fi, it takes that and it basically puts an EXT on there. So when you go to like on your phone, put in connect to Wi-Fi, it just says Marvin's Wi-Fi EXT for extender. So I would go and I'd logged on, and because, um, I don't know uh, where I even bought this thing, but it clearly wasn't a very effective place, it, it's never worked ever. So I would go connect to my Wi-Fi, and it would not allow me to connect to the internet, or it would be really slow, or it would stop, and so my phone would automatically connect, because that's what it does once you log in a couple times, it would automatically, when I walk into my house, connect to Marvin's EXT, which never worked, because my phone is trained to connect to a router every time that it goes into that house. And so what do I have to do? I have to go in and I have to go forget Marvin EXT, this was a total waste of money, thank you Best Buy, and I have to reconnect to Marvin's Wi-Fi. In the same way, your heart, like a phone that is going to connect to a router when it goes in, 
is going to go in and seek to connect to other people. And so you don't have a choice over whether or not you're going to seek to connect. You do have a choice over who you connect with through friendships, through dating relationships, through marriage, because your heart is going to seek to do that. So you have to be very intentional, just like in that scenario where I go in and I have to choose, disconnect from this Wi-Fi that doesn't work and connect with the right one. So you and I, as Christians, are called to be very careful about who we walk in deep relationship with. Some of you, you came into the room and some of the greatest friends you have, and I'm not telling you that you, know, you should be mean to them or rude to them or any of them, but they are pulling you down. And you're trying to get traction as you walk with God and you are connecting, and all of us are connection magnets, connection magnets. You are connecting with people who are gonna pull you away from God and pull you down in your faith. You don't have a choice over whether or not your heart is gonna look to connect and be in relationship with people. You have a choice over who you allow it to connect with. And some of us, the thing that is going to allow your faith to grow is you have to make the decision, I am changing who I am walking in friendships with. I'm not gonna be rude to people and just be like, oh, run the other way, but I'm choosing who I'm going to allow speak and influence in my life because my faith isn't strong enough right now. And these people are pulling me down and I just keep getting blown up and getting pulled back into the same old stuff and I'm choosing, I'm gonna change my playmates in my playgrounds and I'm gonna choose to put myself around God's people. You don't have a choice over the fact that you're going to seek to connect with other people. You do have a choice over where you seek. The same thing with dating and with marriage and with a spouse. All of us are gonna seek that God-given desire that you have to seek out a spouse or to desire to have a husband or wife someday is not something you need to be afraid of. Like, dude, this weird thing happened in Christianity where it like, crept into the church. It's a bad thing for you to want a spouse. I don't know where that happened or where that came from, but it's led to some really silly things where people feel like they have to pretend like, man, I, I, I don't think I'm supposed to want a husband or wife even though I do, so I'm just gonna say, God, I don't want a husband or wife even though I do, and that way you're gonna give me a husband or wife because then you will if I just say that I don't. And it's ridiculous. The Bible says he who finds a wife finds a good thing and receives favor from the Lord. It is a God, yeah, amen. It is a God-given desire, and that's an okay thing. It's not something ultimately any spouse can satisfy. And you may not be able to choose, hey, whether or not I'm gonna desire to have a spouse, but you can choose where you are going to look to connect with one and who you disconnect from that, hey, you are, you are trouble. When you walked in, we are over and I'm disconnecting, I'm deleting this number and I'm cutting it off because you are gonna continue to be, as we've said before, with Mr. Right Now and never find Mr. Right because you're with Mr. Right Now. And you gotta choose, I'm disconnecting. You were created to connect with God, not just with other people, but with God. Every single human heart is created to connect with God. And that is the answer to why so many people can have so much in life and still feel so empty. It's why Tom Brady can sit and be like 49 years old going, hey, I've won 87 Super Bowls and I'm still empty. Go Pats. It's why you can be married and have everything in life and person after person could say, I've got it all and it's not enough because there was something inside of them that was created to connect with God and apart from a relationship with God, that connection is not being met. You were created to experience relationship and connection with God. It was true of Adam, it is still true today. Why did God even put the tree there? That's a really fair question. And the answer is that the heart of God's desire would be a relationship with you. You know what you can't have without a, or you can't have a relationship without? free will. He didn't want robots who couldn't decide to walk with him or choose him. And he gave man free will. And in doing so, he gave them the option to choose him 
or to not, to choose to love him or to not, because he was designed and he wanted relationship. You were designed and created for connection. So Adam and Eve, they're hanging out in the garden, running around naked, hanging out with the animals. Everything's perfect in paradise. And then like five minutes go by, and this is what happens. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did, you, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Okay, so let me hit pause, because if you didn't grow up in church, this is pretty weird of a story. You're like, okay, they're hanging out, everyone's running around, naked in the garden, things look so good, and then a snake starts talking to the lady. That feels like unusual, not your everyday thing. Here's what the serpent in this context, biblically, Repeatedly, the serpent represents Satan. In Revelation chapter 12, we're told that the ancient dragon, that ancient serpent called the devil, who was there at the beginning, that over and over that, that Satan essentially is disguising himself here in the form of a serpent to come and tempt. And that may seem bizarre and weird, but it has been consistently used as the uh, title or a way that Satan disguises and masks himself. So he shows up, begins to speak, and speak lies to Eve. Here's what happens next. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, or we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of, garden, of the garden, and that you must not touch it or you will die. I don't even have time to go into all of this, but Eve added to God's word. He didn't say you can't touch it. He just said you shouldn't eat from it. You will certainly not die, said the serpent, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the original lie, and the lie that ever since it was bought has been breathed into every single human heart, including mine and including yours, was sold and told to Eve. What was the original lie? The original lie was essentially that if you listen to God, you're gonna miss out. Hey, if you listen and you follow God and you actually do it, God is holding back from you. You know that, right? Like, if you actually do what God says, like, you're going to miss out on life. You should do what you want and you should do what you think is best. If you actually follow God, he's holding out. He's not that good. He's not for your good. And what he says, you know, take it or leave it. In Eve, verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. What? And he ate it. Adam was there and he was silent and he failed his wife and he failed to speak up and he failed to stop the lies with the truth. The thing I want to focus on is really what happens every time temptation exists in my life and in your life, and that is this. Every time temptation exists, it calls God's word and words into question. Every time. And let me, let me unpack this because this is so, so important that you understand. And that may just be like, oh, yeah, it calls God's word into question. That feels so irrelevant for my life. Let me, let me try to unpack it here for a second. The first thing we see is that the serpent does something really interesting that I, I never noticed until somebody pointed out this week. He goes through and he changes the descriptive title for God. Prior to that, every single time that God is mentioned, it is the Lord God, or Yahweh Elohim. That's the words Lord and God in Hebrew. Lord was a personal title. God would be kind of like distant, like man, and Yahweh would be my man. 
if you will. And he changes it, and the serpent, every single time, he says, did God say, did God say, not did the Lord God say. In fact, I think we have a slide where here we see all the different times in chapter two, put it back there, all the different times in chapter two where we see the Lord God, Lord God, and then there's so many more of them. You can go back and look. Where the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, Lord God, this relational aspect, and then Satan comes up and he says, did God, and every time he mentions him, he says, God, he says, God, he removes the relational component from them beginning to get them to question. This is not some personal God who cares about you. It's some distant force that just wants to him and rule you in. He's not really that good and he's not really that for you. Every time that you and I fall for a temptation, it comes with us believing a lie or calling into question God's word and his goodness. But here's, here's like how it happens for you and for me. It doesn't normally, even though our temptation is a parallel for this scenario, it's not typically that it goes down like this. In other words, the temptation that you fall for is not generally you're gonna walk out of here and you're gonna be sitting in your car and all of a sudden there's gonna be a snake pop up and he's gonna be like, hey, you know what? You shouldn't do that. You should you know, do this over here. And you're gonna be like, oh man, did God really say? I guess that I'll do that. And he's gonna be like, yeah, eat this apple. And uh, <laughs> that's generally not what happens. It's not on the surface as clear as that, but every time that you and I begin to go, man, is God really that good? Maybe doing what God says is like, you know, it's, it's a big deal when I grow up someday or I kind of like get settled down. But right now in life, you know, it's just not that big of a deal. And that is what it looks like for you to begin to call into question like, man, God says not to do this. He says, this is how you think about sexuality, about money, about life, all these things. And then we attempt to begin to justify in our own mind why, you know, I'm sure that's really good. But just one time, is it that big of a deal? And in doing so, we are doing exactly what Eve was tempted to do question whether or not God and his word is true and he's as good as he says he is every single time. So it may look like, hey, you know, the Bible says don't get drunk on wine that leads to reckless living. And, and if we're just like justification factories where we begin to go like, oh man, this is why it's not exactly that. You know, and we just look for the ability to do what we want to do and we're doing exactly what he did. What I mean, you know, don't get drunk on wine that leads to reckless living. And we're like, dude, it says don't get drunk on wine. It was beer and it was Patron and it's not that big of a deal. And what even is drunk? I mean, I'm, I'm going to take an Uber either way. And so like, where do you define drunk? Like the state of Texas or, you know, I, it's not like I passed out. And it was my 25th birthday. Okay. Get off my back. And we just begin to justify it, justify it. Or um, God says, you know, don't have a hint of sexual immorality named among you. And we take that and we're like, hey, dude, it's okay if I you know, spend the night at my boyfriend's house and at my girlfriend's house. It's not like we're having sex. There's a lot of people doing a lot of things worse. In fact, you know what? I feel like I should get a trophy or something because I'm really you know, standing out. Everybody else is sleeping around. We're just sleeping together and not having sex. And we're seeking to justify our behavior. Man, I'm chasing a hashtag or I'm looking at pornography, but that's not that bad. It's, you know, a lot of people out there are, are having sex with other people, and this is way not as bad as that, and we just begin to buy this idea that, man, it's not that big of a deal. It's not that applicable to me, and I'm justified in my actions, and in doing so, it's calling what God's word says into question for me, for you, every single time. Any of us do it. The interesting thing about this text, or about Satan's offense, which is devil and, and just kind of the way that sins work, he doesn't say, hey, Eve, here's the deal. Eat that apple and follow me. Let's go. You'd be like a devil worshiper. We're gonna give you a hat, some horns and things. You'd be my follower. He doesn't say that. Like, think about this. It's pretty profound. Satan never works like that. What does he say? He says, 
follow you. His offense every single time is not, hey, you know, come follow me. We're going to start a cult. His offense, this is how Satan works every time. It's how he works all over our world. It's not, hey, follow him. It's follow you. Follow what you desire. You should do what you want. All over the message of our world is like, hey, you do you. Nobody else can tell you anything. Even the Bible says it. Hey, I'm a Christian. And yeah, you know, a lot of Christians have sex outside of marriage. And that's not that big of a deal. And, uh, you know, oh, who are you to, uh, you know, judge me over here? Look at you. I'm sure you've done some bad things in your life too. And you buy and you justify and you tell yourself what you're doing is not that big of a deal. And it's okay. And, you know, God out there and God still loves me. I had sex in a windmill. It don't matter. And you do whatever you want. And what is that at the heart of that lie? I can do whatever I want, and Satan's winning. His offense is always not, hey, follow me. It's follow what you want. Is there a lie that is more prolific in our culture today than that? You know what the motto of the church of Satan is? Do as thou wilt. Do as thou wishes. Wilt's just a weird old word that means want. The motto of the church of Satan is not, hey, let's just, you know, burn Bibles and do Wicca. It's uh, or Ouija boards. Wicca, is that a thing? <laughs> the motto is do whatever you want. And his offense has not changed. Anytime that you and I begin to go like, man, I think I deserve this. You know, I think it's okay. And begin to excuse our actions, despite the fact that they don't align with God's word, we should be concerned. I know for me, anytime that I justify like, man, I'm just and I'm entertaining lustful thoughts in my head from past relationships, and I'm like, it's not that big of a deal. I'm justifying sin, and I'm falling, and I'm not believing God is what he says and who he says. Anytime that I allow anxiety to rule over me, and I'm just like, you know, God's word, it really doesn't apply here. I am allowing temptation to lead me to say God's word is not as good as he says. Anytime I'm blaming other people, I'm focusing on how, what I'm entitled to that I don't have, I'm buying into temptation and not taking God's word. I'm calling into question God and who he says that he is. I think a lot of us, and I'll move on to the last point. We bought this idea that I think is why Satan doesn't say Lord God. Like he doesn't say like, man, you're God in relation to God, Lord God. He says just the God, like God who's out there. Tries to make him impersonal, not connected, and you know, who knows, does he even care about you? He just gave these random rules. We think of, of God and, and the instructions he gives us in the Bible, not as like a loving father giving things to protect you and to keep you from harm. We think of him as like, just like you know, some distant government who gives some random arbitrary rules. And, um, and I know at least for me, it can seem like, um, like rule, laws like, like sinning against God is kind of like speeding. It's like I'm driving in the neighborhood and it's 60 miles an hour. And then um, it, at this point, it changes to 75 miles an hour. And I'm like, dude, who decided that, you know, between these 40 feet, it makes sense and it's okay to go up 15 miles an hour because whoever did just cost me a speeding ticket of $300. This just feels ridiculous. I don't even feel bad. I don't even know if I should say this. In fact, I'm already there, so let's just go. I don't even feel bad when I'm speeding. I can convince myself that, man, it's not that big of a deal because it's some distant government out there and don't email me, I know, I'm, I, I choose not to speed, I try not to, Get, let's move on. <laughs> My point is this, it feels like, man, this distant law, I don't even know who set these rules. I never agreed to them, do they even care about me? And they don't feel like they're really after anything other than a speed trap, trying to get me trapped. I think a lot of us think like that about God. 
It's just some random arbitrary rules and it's not that big of a deal. And hey, you know, if you go 70 and a 65, as long as you don't get caught, it's all good. And the Bible says it's not like some random arbitrary government law. It is like a father who loves his children, who says, I'm putting these in place, not to restrict you, not to hold you back because I love you. And every time I say do not, it is do not hurt yourself. It's like my son, I have a three, almost four-year-old son, and one of the key laws in our home that he does not do great, always at a bang, is running into the street. And he sits there, and he's like, you know, all pumped up on Halloween candy lately, and he's like, just gravitational pull is out into the street. And he has a father and mother who give him spanking, saying, do not run in the street. Why? Is it because we're like, dude, the street is where the party at, that, and we wanna keep that away from you? That, that's what we want? No, it's because there's cars, and you could get hurt, and you could die. But to him, he's like, dude, it's not that big of a deal. And sometimes, you know, I've even stepped into the street and nothing's happened. I don't know if they really are for my good and this just feels random. They're keeping me from where the party at. And uh, <laughs> I'm just gonna do that like five more times. Here's the crazy thing though. You're listening and you're like, oh, those are totally different. A speed trap, 60 and 75, that's such an arbitrary law or 60 down to 40 or whatever it is. That's so different from a loving heavenly father who has the best of his child in mind and cares about him and gives him instruction to protect him. You could see the difference. You know who can't? My four-year-old son. He just thinks, man, this guy's, is he just trying to withhold me from me? Because he doesn't have the perspective and maturity to see that. Every single law that God has given, whether or not you have the perspective and maturity to see it, is not to rip you off and constrain you, but from a God who loves you far more than I love my son. And I can't even put into words how much I love my son. And everything that he's given is to protect you. And temptation always comes when we begin to question God in our life. So Adam was created for relationship. He deceived and disobeyed, and Eve did, and called God into question. And everything changed. Here's what happened, verse seven. Then the eyes of both of them, Adam and Eve, were opened. And they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. In a moment, shame enters, insecurity enters, fear enters, everything changed. Death entered. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Most scholars believe this was the pre-incarnate Christ, which, which doesn't... It's hard to kind of fathom. It's basically the before Christ came um, and was born 2,000 years ago, he appeared and was walking in the garden because it says God was clearly walking in bodily form. And he's walking in, and he'd walked tons of times with these guys. He walked every day. I mean, they saw God face to face. Adam and Eve had perfect harmony together, perfect relationship with him. I mean, they existed and they loved each other and looked forward to the moments they got to be around their God, the Lord God, and he was around and he walked. And this day, everything had changed. And they hear him walking, a sound they'd heard before, and instead of running towards God, it says this, and they hid. When they heard the Lord God walking, they hid from the Lord God from among the trees of the garden. And the Lord called out to the man, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. I can only imagine the pain of this moment. 
And uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because we've got just to finish the text. But If you're God, you'd only ever known this perfect relationship, and you're Adam and you're Eve and this perfect harmony with one another, and you're walking up, and, and all of a sudden what used to be you run towards God when you, hear him, when you hear him walking towards you, all of a sudden because of their decision, because shame entered, they turn off and they run away from God. As I think about that, you know what would break my heart so much? If my kids, whenever I showed up at my house, right now every single day that I show up, they run in like, Daddy, and it, it hugs at the door. It would be similar to instead of that happening, if I showed up at my house and they heard Daddy coming and they took off and they saw me and they ran and hid. I know most of us aren't parents in the room, but the emotional response can almost bring me to tears even thinking about that. Now, for a perfect God, who loved Adam and Eve so much that years later he would give his son to die in their place to see his children when his presence come, take off, and in fear run from him. Everything was fractured. And as painful as the decision to disobey, how even more painful was how that decision to disobey led them to run from God in shame. And God said to Adam, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I have commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, The woman you put here, she gave me some of that fruit, and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the blame game begins, and Adam essentially goes like, man, the woman you gave, so basically this is your fault, so you guys figure it out. And the woman says, it was his fault. And sin was introduced and everything broke and everything fractured. And then God in verses 14 through 20 says, these are the curses. God gives Adam, hey, now you're gonna work the ground and it's gonna war against you. Work will not be life-giving. It will war against you. And Eve, childbirth will be painful. And miscarriage and all the brokenness around giving birth will no longer be what it was intended to be. And your desire will be to rule over your husband or to get something from your husband that he cannot give to you. And he lays out to the serpent, and this will be your curse. And then I want you to see what God does next. Then the Lord God made garments of skin. That's clothes or fur. A sacrifice was made. And he made them for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good from evil, knowing good and evil. Previously, he had only known good. And he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and also take life and eat it and live forever. So God gives provision of clothing and protection. Why do I say that? Had Adam been able to reach out and eat of the tree of life, essentially he would have been able to live forever in sin. He would have experienced living hell quite literally, eternally. And so even that is a protection of God saying, hey, I'm gonna not allow him to eat from that tree and they moved him out of the garden and out Eve out of the garden and they put there an angel, we're told, guarding the Garden of Eden and the rest of the story. But even that was an extension of God's grace because he knew one day he would send a savior to redeem and recreate and make all things new in this world. But here's the thing that I wanna showcase or just highlight for just the last few minutes we have is that sin always brings separation. It always brings separation. It brings separation in your relationships with your parents. It brings separation in your relationship with God. It brings separation in my relationship with friends. Anytime sin is present, it always drives in separation. And so let me explain what I mean by that and why this is so huge. 
Adam was not separated from God geographically immediately after he ate. He was separated from him relationally. Anytime sin is present, and because sin is present in our world, there is a relational gap that exists between you and I. Sin always brings in separation into you and I's life. We do the same exact thing, Adam, tragically. Like, it's, it's so crazy how when we sin, it can drive us further because of our shame and guilt into sin. How many people, they give up their virginity, and it's like, dude, it doesn't even matter anymore. I'm, I'm now able to have sex with, or I'm now willing to have sex with more people, and I don't hold it as tightly because, you know, I've already played that card. It's not that big of a deal, and I feel kind of a shame and guilt about it. And so I'll just like look for that as an opportunity to receive affection in a relationship. It's because they bought that initial line and it drove us further and further and further. Oftentimes it's, it's the process of how addiction just starts. And man, I'm so ashamed, and instead of running to God, I run from him further, and it builds my shame, and I grow more shameful and more afraid and more guilty. And the God who's there man, doesn't want you to run and try to hide and cover up. He says, come to me, bring it to me, and I will clothe you in my righteousness. Just like here, there's a parallel. Don't cover it up, bring it to me, and I will clothe you like I clothed Adam and Eve with forgiveness and righteousness. You don't have to hide and you don't have to run from me. The Bible says that on the day that they ate it, they would surely die. Now, let me explain something really quick. Just Because I've, I've read that text before, and it's a really interesting thing. It's like, man, they didn't die that day, right? Like, it can sometimes read, like, the Bible says, hey, the wages of sin, Romans chapter 3, is death. And so you sin, you get death. If you uh, eat from the tree, you die. In James chapter 1, it says that sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. And it can feel like, really? Like, I sinned? I feel like I sinned today, and I didn't die. What is that? It's like this. Any vets in the house? Good, no vets. Okay, my, uh, my dog, is, um, he's, he's not playing with a full deck, and he has on multiple occasions eaten grapes. And here's what I've learned as it relates to grapes. Grapes will kill a dog. It will straight up put you in the ground, knock a sucker out. And this dog has eaten on multiple occasions. My wife has called me and been like, hey, the dog ate grapes. And then becomes this decision where we're on like, you know, veterinary.com trying to figure out like, is this actually gonna kill him? And how much do we like the dog? And... Uh, <laughs> Because it's crazy, if they eat that fruit, it will straight up kill them. It'll like, it could shut down their kidneys, or so we've been told, and this could be just some hoax veterinarians are making a killing off of. And um, so we have to take him, get a stomach pump, because in making that decision, if he eats those, and he digests them, it'll kill him. And sometimes it can feel like you read passages like this, and it's like, is it really gonna kill him? Like, sin is death, like, immediately, you know? Like, you know, I had sex outside of marriage, and... You know, I'm gonna die for that? It can feel like that's the message of the church. Hey, you smoke pot, you're gonna explode. That's why you shouldn't do it. <laughs> and then you do it and you're like, I didn't explode. I, I don't understand. What, the wages of sin is death. Sin always brings death. That feels a little aggressive. Let me explain what that means because it's really important that you understand or else you're gonna go, it's not that true. By sin, every time that there's sin, it brings death into our life. What is death? It, the opposite of life. Every time that sin is involved anywhere, it doesn't bring life in, it sucks life out of you. And eventually that erodes and decays and leads to death. The erosion of relationships, death of relationships can lead to the death of your faith. Let me explain, like it's not just like little death. And it is true that Adam and Eve, the moment you sin, they were on a clock, they started dying. The moment that you were born, you started dying. You get that, right? We're all continuing every second. It's eventually, it's just a slow death. 
because death entered into our world. But it wasn't just that. Sin also brings death to relationships. Some of you, like me, your parents' marriage died because of sin, whether it was selfishness, alcoholism, adultery. And you saw the firsthand effects. Sin brings death. It brings death to your faith and that you begin to make one decision after the next. Like, people don't walk away from God overnight, generally. You know that? They just begin to go like, oh man, I just started doing this, and then I started doing this, started hanging out with these people, started making this relationship, started living with him, and then I'm not even sure I believe in this anymore. And slowly by slowly, their faith just died because sin brings death every time that it's there. It can bring death, as we've seen, like someone's health. It can bring death of your freedom because you hand in your freedom card for addiction and you're, hey, I'm free to do whatever I want, all of a sudden becomes, I'm not free to do whatever I want anymore. I can't stop. And death happened to your freedom. And the good news is God brings dead things back to life all of the time. And the story's not over, but every time sin is introduced, it brings the opposite of life, which is dying, death, into the picture. More than anything, and let me highlight this as my third point and then close. I hope you hear me. And I think that this message in the church has been so lost and poorly communicated over the years. God's concern with you, anytime there's sin present in your life and anytime there's sin present in my life, according to the Bible, it's not him running going, I cannot believe you did that. I said, no jumping in the street, that's where the party's at. No, I don't want you to experience that because I don't want you focused on that thing. His concern is about what that sin is doing to you. Every single time, it's like this. My, my daughter, I took my son and my daughter this past weekend, we went to Home Depot, and they have this like kids sometimes on Saturdays. What you have to look forward to as a parent, Home Depot, here we go, and we're there, and they have like these kids workshops, you're like building stuff, and you're like building um, a plane or an eagle or something at the time, and, and I'm there, and we're building it, and um, they had popcorn that they were giving out to different kids, and my one and a half year old daughter is like a hungry, hungry hippo in life. So she eats things that aren't even food. She's just like, I'll take it. And she sees over this popcorn that's over on the floor, like just nasty popcorn over on the floor. And she's like, oh man, look at that, snack, lunch. And my son is like running off the other direction. And I'm, I'm all alone playing solo dad and just kind of chaos. And I'm like, just regretting my decision to come to Home Depot entirely. And I'm yelling at him, stop going over there. And then I look over her here and her name's Monroe. And I'm like, Monroe, you do not eat that popcorn. You do not eat that popcorn, Monroe. Do not eat, crew, come back here. Someone give me a ball help. And, uh, and she sits down and she just plops down. She throws the popcorn in her mouth that's been sitting there, who knows how long. And she begins to choke. And uh, and as a dad, you're like, it's kind of terrifying. You're running over there and this never happened before with her. And I I pick her up and she's choking and not just kind of like, I mean like color changing in her face. And I'm trying to push on her stomach and pat her on the back. And it was was really a terrifying experience. In that moment, do you know what I'm not concerned with? Her disobedience to eat the popcorn. I'm concerned about what her disobedience to eat the popcorn has done to her and is doing to her. The God who's there is not there out going like, man, I can't believe you made that decision and I'm just so angry at the fact that you would do. He's more concerned about what your decision, about what sin is doing to you. Not about your sin, period. He's concerned about what you 
or what it's going to do to you like any father is not just going, I can't believe, you know, we're going to sit here and you need to think about what you've done with that popcorn. And, and you know, minute that you repent, then we'll talk about you breathing again. And that's not what any sane parent would do. Right? That's nuts. And my heart is going, man, I, I'm more concerned not about what she did, but about what she did and how it's impacting her now and what it's doing to her. Every time this sin, that's the heart of God as he moves in, not because he's like, man, I'm just here and I'm angry and I can't believe. He's concerned about what he's doing to you and to me because he's a father who loves and cares about his children. The Bible says that in conclusion, we were created for connection with God. Every time that you and I fall for temptation, it involves questioning man, God's word and his way. And ultimately, sin will always bring separation. It always has brought separation. But let me just focus on this last thing. I didn't read all the curses that were there, but in place of one of the curses, the Bible says that hey, he looks at Adam, gives him a curse, Eve curse, and then he goes to the serpent who represents the devil or Satan. And in the midst of his curse, God makes a promise that is the first foreshadowing of the bloodline to come of Jesus. Here's what it says in verse 14 of chapter three. Then the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity or war between you and the woman. The woman? And her offspring and yours. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Why does he say the woman? It's foreshadowing of the virgin birth that Jesus was on the planet, was born of a virgin. She didn't come from the lineage of Joseph. She came from Mary. And he says, there's gonna be a descendant that comes from the woman, from a woman, and he's gonna crush your head. The victory will be final in his. But you will bruise his heel, and it will be through pain that he will win the victory. And it's a foreshadowing of what Jesus would ultimately do on the cross to finally and ultimately defeat and bring about all things good and redeemed in our world. Romans chapter five, the apostle Paul, years later, would write this about Jesus and about Adam and their relationship together in the bloodline. And he would say this, in Romans chapter five, verse 12. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world, and Adam's sin brought death. So when you sin, it brought, it introduced death. So death spread to everyone. Now Adam, verse 14, is a symbol and a representation of Christ, who is yet to come. But there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift, that's Jesus and what he did. The sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and the gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus. And the result of this gracious gift is very different from the result of Adam's sin, for Adam's sin led to condemnation. But the free gift, free gift, leads to being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. Paul basically says, hey, Adam and Jesus, they're like these, they have a similar thing going on. And he basically goes, hey, remember Adam, how he sinned and they like ruined it for everybody? Jesus showed up and his death on the cross, dying in your place, has offered grace and saving to everybody that the savior is stronger than the sinner. And Jesus has offered this free gift and God came through, came through on the promise that he made as early as the garden in the very first story of our parents that I will one day crush and defeat sin and evil in this world. And everything broken points back to Adam. Everything in your world points back to Adam. And everything broken points 
forward to Jesus or points to the need of this world for a savior. Think about it. The challenge of, of a world without the message of the hope that Jesus brings is a world where you're left with nothing but questions. And the Bible says that the answer and the solution that God has given was paid for and proved by God coming in our place to die on a cross. And I hope that you leave, and here's the message I just wanna leave you with. I've been in Lake Highlands, it's an area of Dallas, and it's kinda of where we live, and the past year, it's been like a weird year in Dallas. If you're not from here, you're not listening. It's just been like storm after storm, and it feels like you know, there's a tornado that was really close to our house, and there were like trees that all kind of got knocked down this past summer. It's just been like crazy. So what's happened? There's been a lot of sirens going off. And sometimes in my, my area of, of town, I'm like, man, I, was that, is that an ambulance siren? Or is that a police car siren? Or what, what type of siren is that? And you're kind of waiting, and as it gets closer, you're able to tell. But those two elicit very different responses from us in life, don't they? Like a police siren, when you're on the road and you're like, you know, driving along and you hear a police siren, it creates a, oh no, what, am I over the speed limit? Are they coming to get me? Versus if you're in a place where you're like in need of help and you hear an ambulance siren, you're not thinking, oh man, they're coming to get me. You're thinking they're coming to help me. The message of the Bible, and I need you to hear me because some of you, I just want you to consider, could it be most of what you believe about God is not true. You think that he's a God that is out there and he's coming to get you. And the message from every page, including the very first ones, is very early on, he's coming to help you. And in this life, from the moment you breathe to the moment you die, that has always been the focus of God. And could it be, I just want you to consider, you have bought a lie about what God is like. And every time you recoil and fear, every time you think God wouldn't want to have anything to do with me, you are living out the true or you're living out the lie that you have bought that God doesn't actually come to do anything but get me, not help me. And the mercy of Christ and his heart for you, compassion towards you, is on every single page of the Bible. What if everything you believe, what if so many things that you believe about God are wrong? And everything and every fear that you have, that if he really knew, if they really knew, if God really is there, he doesn't want to be with me. He doesn't want to know me is a lie. And I'm not gonna be able to convince you and there's no story or anything that I could share that could, only God can do that. I just wanna ask the question and ask you to consider, even if you could say I'm a believer, could it be that so many of the ways you think about God are not true? Because the Bible, this first story, Adam runs. God runs in towards him and says, I will take what you're covering up in your shame and I'm gonna clothe you. And I promise I'm gonna save you and I'm gonna save every person who will accept the free gift of grace because the Savior is stronger than the sin and the sinner. For anyone who will accept that free gift, could it be you bought a lie about what God is really like? And my prayer is that as you study and you know God and that God even right now in this moment will move in your heart and woo you to know him in a unique way, in a way that's consistent with who he says that he is, and not recoil in shame and fear that it's true. Every word of the Bible testifies it's true, that God loves you, and he's come for you, and he's coming for you, not to get you, but to help you. We pray. Father, thank you that every time 
we see you interact in our world through the person of Jesus in the New Testament. It reflects the character and the heart of a God who said, I came to seek and to save the lost. My heart is for a world that is sick and in need of a doctor. And so would you help us, Lord, to believe that? One of the greatest lies that we still believe today is the lie that Adam and Eve bought. God's really not that good. He really doesn't love you as much as he says he does. Would you help us, God? I need your help to believe that. And so in a room where thousands of us gather and listening on, where thousands of more gather all through different places, we just invite and we ask for your help, God. Would you help us to believe, maybe believe again for a new and fresh way? You're a God who runs after those who run from you. You never stop when you're chasing and you're loving and you're pursuing. We worship you now in song. Amen.